Who's hungry for the word today? So, when I was younger, uh, I've mentioned this before, but the, the sport that I played was ice hockey. I know most people probably played some kind of sport or involved in some kind of activity when they were younger, but when we got into our uh, kind of adolescent years, you know, 10, 11, 12, I don't know why, but there was something funny that we always just did before every game or practice got to be kind of a routine. You know, when you're a young boy, you start wearing a, a cup, a protective cup, right, to kind of keep you protected. Um, and so we would just go around and it was just, we called it a cup check. And we would take the stick and we would go down and somebody different would do it each time and all the guys would be sitting there or standing there and cup check, cup check, and you'd just hit everybody in the area um, the cup was supposed to be. Needless to say, you would always find out who wasn't wearing a cup. Um, but I thought about that because today the message that I want to preach is one that sometimes could be considered this subject matter um, kind of a strong message. You know, sometimes the way that you, uh, some of the messages that we preach can be very convicting and very strong and, and we just, we need to be in a place where we're prepared and ready to hear that. So to all the men in the room today, I would say, cup check, be ready. <laughs> Women, just visualize the concept, all right? But I want to talk to you about sin. I want to talk to you about sin. And, and really, I say that and kind of joke around, but the truth is, is that if we have a real revelation of sin and what it can do to us in our lives, but also the victory that we have over it and how to walk in victory over sin, it really isn't a subject that would be hard to hear or that we should stay away from at all. It, in fact, is one that we should celebrate and rejoice over when we truly see and understand what the Bible teaches us about that. Now, there's no question that sin and sinfulness, if continued to be walked out in our lives, ultimately will always lead us into a place of destruction and despair and difficulty. The Bible is very clear about that. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its path leads to destruction or death. And I'm, I'm not talking about, so when we, when we talk about sin, listen, what, what we have to realize first is that when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are born again, we are saved, we are redeemed, and we are forgiven of the condition of sin, and, and we are forgiven uh, of the penalty of of sin that would be due upon us because Jesus' blood has washed us clean. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when we're born into this world because of the condition of sin that began in the Garden of Eden when man fell, Adam and Eve fell, that we are born into the world 
in the condition of sin, and so there is a forgiveness that is needed, that is necessary. That's what Jesus came and paid the price for some couple thousand years ago. So our penalty of sin, which is to be separated from God eternally, is forgiven and we are redeemed and restored back into a place of righteousness, the Bible tells us. So there's that condition of sin. But even as we are saved, born again, and made new creations, because we live in this world, and our spirit actually resides inside of a fleshly body, that there is still a temptation of sin, there is still a a, a sinfulness in a broken world that we walk in that really is constantly dogging our trail, and the enemy is constantly trying to get us to err off of the path of righteousness into a path of sinfulness. And so sometimes when we are born again, and we come to know Christ and we're forgiven, we can actually go into our new life with him, our born-again life, but we can actually carry some habits of sin over into our new walk in our new life with God. How many, I mean, that was certainly the case with me, you know. I was excited and really just loving the fact that Jesus died for me, but there were still habits and patterns and things of sin in my life that I was involved in that God had to still work out of me and that he had to help me to see that they were wrong and I had to be able to turn away from them and give up what those things were doing to me. And here's the point, is that if we continue to walk in sin, ultimately destruction will come upon us. If you look at someone who's sinning in an area of maybe addiction, I mean, ultimately, that will destroy their physical body, right? We see that sin always brings harm and destruction the longer that we continue to walk in it. And the Bible even tells us that once we know, in the book of James, it says, to him who knows not to do something but does it anyway, to him it is sin. So there's this sense of conviction that the Holy Spirit that comes to live on the inside of us begins to give us as we walk with God to help us to discern and to see and understand what is right and what is wrong. And we become convicted by that sin. It's important that at that point we begin to deal with that and we begin to turn from that and toward the path that God is laying out for us. And, and so this is one of the most relevant topics, obviously, that you could preach about from the entire Bible to believers, to, to people who are walking with God, is that sin is still something that we have to deal with, that we have to have a response for, and we have to know, most importantly, how to continue to walk in victory over the sinfulness that will tempt us and lure us in our lives to stray and err away from the path that God has for us. Is everybody with me so far? So about, I guess, 10 years ago, um, I got a real revelation from God out of a book in the Old Testament. It's a prophetic book. It's not one a lot of people have really even would, would, rec- uh, would know or remember if they heard it. It's the book of Joel, okay? Um, and it's, it's a prophetic book, and I was reading this, and God showed me that there is a pattern here in the book of Joel about how sin works in our lives 
and how sin can ultimately lead to destruction or it can lead to the way that we handle it or we can come at and walk in victory over that. And so I want to unpack this for you today. I want to show you this biblical pattern that's, that's there in the book of Joel that we see, and I want to help, it, help relate this to our lives so that we can see what will happen if we walk in sinfulness. Also, we can see what will happen if we turn from that whenever we are convicted and we begin to walk in the way that God has for us. So a little bit about Joel. It, there's not a lot known on this author, really, um, even the date of his writing is hard to calculate. They think it's, uh, historians think it's somewhere in around like 1000 BC. But Joel is a prophet, um, and so like all prophets, he is a spokesperson, he's a mouthpiece for God who's bringing a message from God to the people. And the situation that the people of Israel are in is that they have been walking in a place of sin, they've kind of been walking in a pattern of sin for a while, and now God is bringing the prophet and bringing the spokesperson to let the people know, to warn the people, to convict the people that it's time to turn away from this sin and begin to turn back toward God. Now, if we are walking with God today, we know that he still uses prophets and teachers and pastors, evangelists, and apostles. Those are offices in the church. But we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And so there is a sensitivity that we have to being convicted by God whenever we begin to walk in a place of sin or err away from his path for us. The Holy Spirit starts to convict or convince us that we need to, to turn away from that. So Israel's been walking in this place for a while, and God says, it's time to warn them, it's time to let them know they need to turn away, because if they don't, continued destruction is what's going to happen. So let's open up our Bibles to the book of Joel, chapter 1. And beginning in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? Or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. So he's saying, listen, this needs to be talked about. This needs to be broadcasted. This needs to continue to be a message that echoes throughout the generations about getting away from sin and not continuing to walk in sin once you've been warned, once you've been convicted by this. Verse 4, it says, what the chewing locust left... The swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. So let's stop right there. So what's happened is that they've been walking in sin. They've been walking away from God. They've pr probably been worshiping idols, involved in immorality, all the things that as a nation they've no been known to do over the years, and God is warning them. And they've been walking in it long enough that what's now started to happen is he's saying that the locusts have devoured everything that's in the land. So all of their crops, all of their fruit, all of their provision, the livelihood 
their blessing that God has been giving them so that they have wealth and riches and they have everything that they need, it's now been devoured by the locust. The Bible in, in refers to the locust actually in a lot of cases as the devourer. Who else is known as the devourer? Satan himself, right? So listen, here's the first part of the pattern that we see. When we continue to walk in sin and continue to go in that direction, that ultimately what we do is we create a foothold and then we create an opening for Satan and for the enemy to come in and begin to devour and rob and take from us that which God is really intending to bless us with. We give him a place in our lives by opening ourselves up to sin and then walking in sin. And it's like we've opened a door for the enemy to kind of step into our lives. And then once he does, he can begin to devour and take from and rob us from all of the wealth, the riches, the blessing that God is actually wanting us to walk in. So the land has become desolate now. They've walked in it long enough where the locusts, and, and you just see the progression. This locust ate some, and then what they left, the next phase of locusts came, and then a the next phase of locusts came. So there's like three progressions to this where now the devourer has essentially been able to wipe out everything that they have, and so the land has become desolate. How many people have ever locked their keys in their car before? Right? You're like, what? where's he going with this? So... I've done it a few times, um, and you know, if you've got a newer car, it's not like those older cars where you can just kind of pull that window down and jimmy in, right? You got to call AAA or get somebody that knows what they're doing, and I had this time a few years ago where for whatever reason, I locked my keys in my truck like twice within a couple weeks. I was like, what is going on, Matt, you know? Anyway, so I have AAA, and they come out, and I was watching the guy, and it was really interesting because he pulls out, you know, his kit, and he's got like this suitcase of stuff, you know, and he opens them up, and all these tools there. He's like a surgeon, you know, ready to go, and he pulls out first this like little wedge, and then he gets another wedge, and he gets another wedge. He's got like three wedges, and each one of these wedges are a little bit bigger than the next one, and so he takes the first wedge that's really small and thin, and he gets it inside that kind of drives it up in the window over that seal there in the top and he kind of hammers it in and it just barely creates this little bitty gap that you can see. But he can't get in through that little gap yet all the way down in to get access. So what does he do? He takes this another, this next wedge that's just a little bigger and he puts that one in and he drives that one in and then the gap gets a little bigger, the window comes down a little bit further. And he just kind of gets rid of that small one. He still can't quite get all the way in there. So then he takes a third wedge, which is an even bigger one. And he drives that one down in there. And before you know it, you've got a few inches. And now he can just reach that tool right in there and grab the latch and pull it up. Why do I tell you that? Because I was thinking to myself, man, that is a lot how sin works in our lives. When we walk in sin, when we first step into it, it's kind of like the enemy just barely gets this crack. He kind of just gets this little foothold in our lives that he is now not going to tr want to give up. And he's going to try to continue to get us to walk in it 
longer and longer, he's going to tempt us to keep us to stay in that place and not turn away from it. And as the longer that we do, the more of a wedge he continues to drive into our lives and the more access he now has to be able to come in and to do a work of wrecking and destroying everything that God is wanting to do in and through us. Are you with me? And that's what happens is we'll walk in sin and just like the locusts come along, devour one phase, another phase comes along, devours more, and then another phase. And before you know it, they've wiped out and destroyed all of these great things, this plentiful fruit and harvest that God has really been wanting to bless the people with all along. But because they've walked in sin and God has allowed the enemy, they've given the enemy a foothold in their lives because if we walk in sin, it's like we're inviting him in and then he comes comes in and begins to destroy all the things that God is trying to do. And as a result, they're left with a desolate land. Now listen to this. The next thing we see in verse 10, it says, The field is wasted, the land mourns, the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, and the oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. So the first thing that I pointed out to you in this pattern is as we walk in sin, we see that we give the enemy a foothold and a place in our lives where he can come in and begin to have access to destroying and bringing destruction into things. The second thing I want you to see is that all of the, the that there's a drought that's happening. That's what means by, by saying everything is withered up. So it's all dry. Well, it's dry because there's no rain. Rain represents the blessings of God. So not only if we walk in sin do we see giving place to the enemy to come in and destroy things in our lives, what we also in fact do is we begin to step out from under the rain or the water or the blessings of God being able to continually flow into our lives and into this area of our lives that we're walking in. We can't walk in sin knowingly and still expect God to just pour his blessings out upon us. Are you with me? It's like saying somebody's in an adulterous relationship, let's say, and they say, oh, I really want this relationship to be blessed. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, but this is obviously something that you are doing in sinfulness. You can't expect that to be blessed if you're knowingly walking in a place of sin. So we see that when we move, we walk in sin, the enemy is allowed to come in and devour us, but we also sort of cut ourselves off and, and dry up the blessing and that reign of God from beginning to f- being able to continually flow into our lives and keep everything rich and plentiful and growing and producing fruit in what it is that we're doing. Is everybody with me so far? A cup check, we need to do that again? I know, this is tough stuff, right? Okay, so moving on from here, jump down to verse 13. It says, gird yourselves and lament, you priests, wail, you minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from your house of God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, 
Gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord and cry out to the Lord. So now we see where the turn happens here. Or where I should say it can happen. They've walked in sin long enough to where now the initial onset of the destruction and the blessings kind of being removed have already started to set in and they're seeing all these consequences. And so this is where the voice of the Lord is coming to them. The prophet is coming to them saying, turn away. You've been in sinning. This is why all these things are happening. You need to get away from this. And so what he's doing is he's pulling them now to begin mourning, to begin weeping, which is a true evident evidence of conviction of sin is that we now have what we would refer to as a godly kind of sorrow that begins to set in. We're not sorry because something bad is happening. That's part of it. But we're really sorry because we realize that we've sinned against God. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Are you with me? Worldly sorrow can lead to regret, but godly sorrow leads to repentance. This is a significant difference. So he's saying it's time for you to mourn. It's time for you to cry out and to begin to weep for what you now realize you have done and that you've sinned against God. And let me just say that if the Holy Spirit lives in us and we're walking with God and there's a sensitivity so that he can convict us when we walk astray. Listen, you understand I'm talking to all of us, right? There's no, none of us that are removed from being susceptible to this. And so the Holy Spirit can convict us of that. And then when that happens, the automatic response ought to be in our heart Oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry that I've erred. I'm so sorry that I've sinned against you. There's this godly kind of sorrow that begins to rise up, and we mourn for what is happening. We don't have sorrow just because we got caught or because something bad is happening to us. There's a true, genuine sorrow. This is how you can really see when you know God is working on you is because it's like in your gut, you're just like, oh, my gosh, I just... I, I hurt, I pain over this because I've sinned against God. And there's that godly kind of sorrow. And he's saying to the priest, call this fa a time of fasting and a time of uh, weeping and a time of mourning. And then in verse 15, he says, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand and it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Now this is very important, very important. Because what's happened here is they've already been walking in sin. They've already erred. They've already messed up and missed the mark. And now the conviction, the word of God is coming to them and letting them know, you've messed up. You need to turn away from this. How many people have ever done something wrong and then you realize, I shouldn't have done that. I need to stop doing that. It's really, this is what this is a pattern for. And so he's saying, the day of the Lord is at hand. It's near. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is essentially like the full culmination, the full onslaught of the destruction that we have allowed to come into our lives to really fully come in and just completely annihilate everything. It's like there's a building there. If we continue to walk in sin 
long enough willingly, at some point, there's going to be some major type of destruction that's going to come. When the Babylonians eventually came in and overran all of Israel and destroyed everything, it was a time that was referred to as the day of the Lord. There's also a reference to the day of the Lord at the very end times when Jesus returns and everything gets, all of the unbelievers get annihilated. But, it's, but what it's meaning is that it's basically saying this, you better stop doing what you're doing. You have to quit meddling in that thing. You've been warned. You've been convicted. If you keep going now, then it's going to get a whole lot worse than what it already is. And it's already pretty bad. Agreed? But what he's saying is is that you haven't seen anything yet. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah, right? I mean, he's saying, look, if you keep walking in sin, then ultimately the enemy is going to be allowed to come in and then just completely annihilate and wreak havoc over everything. He's going to come in and bring complete onslaught and destruction. And we can't keep walking down that path for a long period of time and not expect at some stage that type of destruction to eventually come and set in. But, but they're mourning, they're weeping, they're hurting because they've sinned against God. And if that truly begins to happen, then look at what happens next. Over in chapter 2, verse 12, says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger And of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord. Jump down into verse 18 and listen to this. And then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. Stop right there. So this godly sorrow, this conviction has now produced repentance. He's saying, rend your heart, not your garments. That means to tear. That means to rip. He's saying, be be torn at your heart that you've sinned against God and turn away from that and turn fully toward me. And that means to repent. To repent means to turn away from something and turn toward something. So he's saying, turn away from this sin that you've been involved in. Turn toward me fully. Rend your heart. And then what does he see? The Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. I love this because that shows us that God has a zeal. He is zealous for all his children, us, as soon as we reach a place where we repent and we've turned away from whatever sin we've been involved in. Isn't that amazing? He's not this God that you, this is what I'm saying, like this kind of stuff is actually exciting for us to hear because he's not this God that's doom and gloom that's just waiting to just strike us with a lightning bolt as soon as we sin. He's actually merciful. He's waiting. He's long-suffering. He's saying, I'm going to send people. I'm going to convict you with my Holy Spirit. I'm going to try to help you see you can't keep going. I'm going to wait. I'm going to give you time. And then when you finally do and you're torn at your heart and you turn away from the sin and you turn toward me, I'm going to be zealous and excited and I'm going to be ready to meet you right where you are and forgive you for that which you've been airing in. Isn't that amazing? If you understand that, that ought, that ought to make you shout actually because that is, that is our solution 
Guys, that is our answer. That is our response to what we can actually do is turn from and turn toward God and seek him and he can forgive us of anything that we've been walking in that is producing some sort of harm or destruction in our lives. And I don't know about you, but I've been in so many times and so many places in my life where I'm literally weeping because of this reality. Because God is so good and so merciful that I could have done all that I did and screwed up all that I screwed up. And I could still, when I really realize what I'm doing, turn to him and be completely forgiven of the whole mess. Isn't that unbelievable? He's not a, he doesn't hold accounts of wrong. He just says, thank you. And you've turned toward me. And I'm going to forgive you of everything that you've been erring in. Jesus said, he said, remember Lot's wife. Remember that story? When Lot was leaving from Sodom and Gomorrah, what did his wife do? She turned back toward the sin that she'd been entrenched in. It had such a grip on her that she never really could fully turn away from it and turn toward God. And as a result, she was dropped into a pillar of salt. She's still blowing around in the wind out there in the desert today. But that just tells us we can't turn back. When we finally get convicted of sin, we've got to turn toward God. And we've got to step forward out from that thing and not let that thing continue to pull at us and pull us back into this. Because when we do, then we begin to step into a place where even greater destruction can come upon us. But listen to this. After, G after God is zealous for his people, in verse, in verse 20... He says, chapter 2, But I will remove from you the northern army, and I will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Be not afraid, beasts of the field and the open pastures are springing up. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you. The former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil so I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. The three phases of locust. Let's stop right there. So you see what's happening. They've turned from. They've repented. God has forgiven them. He's zealous for their repentance. And now they've been washed clean of that. But what he also does, this is the miracle God that we serve. He says, okay, now that you've turned fully towards me and turned away from that sin. I'm going to do several things. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to come in and I'm going to drive the enemy out of your land. When we turn from God or turn from sin and turn toward God, we put ourselves in a position where he can drive the enemy out of our lives with that area of temptation or sinfulness that he once had a hold of over us before. He says, I'll come in and I'll drive the enemy out of your land. I'm going to move him out so he cannot occupy and tempt you and continue attacking you and devouring that which I've given you. Isn't that awesome? But he says, I'm not just going to drive the enemy out. Guess what else? 
The, the water is going to begin to flow again. The fig trees are bursting forth with fruit. Very important. It says the former rain and the latter rain will come in the first month. It says I will restore to you all of that which the locust has taken from you. We don't just start in a new season of new blessing. He actually comes back and restores to us that which was supposed to be ours all along that the enemy has taken from us. See, we sometimes think, yeah, I screwed up and I'm going to turn towards God, but it's so bad I've wrecked all that. I'll never recover from that again. God says, no, 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 that's, that's not what I do. I actually, when you really are repentant and you've really turned away from that and you've turned toward me, I'm going to drive the enemy out so he can't battle you. He can't attack you and defeat you with that thing anymore. But I'm also going to restore to you everything which he's taken from you. You will see the former and the latter rain in the first month. The former rains come in the earlier part of the year. They get the crops going, but it's the latter rains that saturated in the second half of the season to bring it to full maturity and abundance. They've already missed the former rain because of the sequence of time. He's saying, no, 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 I'm going to bring the former and I'm going to bring the latter all in the first month. It's going to be a miracle and everything that was taken from you is actually going to be restored to you. You're not going to have lost anything. Is that unbelievable? Or what? That God would do that for us if we, if we just recognize. I mean, really, if you think about it, what do I have to do? I recognize that I've erred, that I've sinned. I hurt, I weep, I mourn over that. I turn away from it and I turn toward God and say, I'm a mess. I can't fight that thing. I can't do it on my own. Forgive me and help me. Okay, you're forgiven of that. I'll drive that out of your life and let me restore everything that's been taken from you as a result because you're my child and you're blessed and that's what I do for my children who walk with me. Isn't that unbelievable, guys? And listen to this. If we jump down into verse 26, this is this last part of this pattern here that I want to show you. It says, you will eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God. There is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. Key emphasis on, and you shall praise the name of the Lord your God. As we started today with, it is very appropriate that we would praise and that we would worship and that we would glorify God for all that he has done in and through our lives. He says, what do I want from you? You can't earn this kind of forgiveness. You can't earn this kind of restoration. You can't earn this kind of blessing. The only thing that I require from you, I require your praise. I require your worship. I want you to shout from the rooftops what I've done for you. I want you to declare, not just now in this moment when this is happening, but I want you to declare through all the generations that are yet to come. Tell your generations of your children and their children. That's why they set up memorial stones and things where God did because he wanted them to teach the future generations about it. He's saying, listen, what I've done in your life, this is worthy of praise. This is worthy of worship. This is worthy of honor. You need to glorify me and give me praise and worship for what it is that I've done. 
on. And you need to continue to celebrate that over the years and over the generations to come. Can I tell you something? I am still rejoicing and celebrating over the things that God has forgiven me from in the past decade ago, years ago, and restored me from and brought me back into a place of blessing. There are still many a days where when I think about that, I just can't help but worship God and give him honor and say, thank you, Lord. I can't even believe what you've already done in my life. There's a perpetuation of our praise. That's why he says, make altars and set up memorial stones and, and worship me and praise me. But, but also, that's not enough. Whenever your children come along and they see that, teach them about what happened and teach them to praise me and worship me. And hopefully they won't fall into that same pattern of sinfulness. But it's worthy of me being glorified and honored for what I've done in your life. And you need to never, ever forget that. Isn't that amazing? And what I found is that that produces a faith in a victory in my life as I rejoice over the things and praise God over the things he's already done, where it produces a strength and a faith for victory in the future temptations and lures and traps of sin that the enemy puts in my path in the future. No, no, no. I ain't going there. I know where that goes. I've seen what happens when I go that road. I'm going a different way because what God's already done in my life, what he's already forgiven me from, what he's already restored in me, that's the way I want to go. That's the path I want to take. So these future temptations of sin that the enemy's laying out before me to kind of get me to trip and stumble, because I'm praising God perpetually and continually for what he's already done in my life, I will recognize and see those things, avoid those things, but I'll find my victory in him and not my own strength, and I won't fall into any of those future traps the enemy he tries to set for me. Isn't that amazing? And what does a person who walks with God look like? You know, the Bible says a lot of times, don't walk in sin, don't sin, don't do this. And, you know, some people can get this real extreme thought where it's like they think, well, God just says if you ever sin, then, you know, you're just always, if you sin, then you're just messed up. And it's not, he's saying you're not to walk in a pattern of sin. A person who walks with God is a person who ought to be rigid about running sin out of their lives, seeing temptations when they come, and recognizing that the enemy is trying to pull us away from what God would have us to do, put our faith in him, put our trust in him, and the victory in him that we begin to walk out. And we're just a people who are running sin out of our lives all the time because our heart is rended towards God. It's torn. We want to please him, and we won't want to do anything that hurts or offends him. Are you with me? Listen to this. In verse 32, it says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a cry to the unbeliever. This is a cry that says the arm of the Lord is never too short to save. You are never in a place where it's so bad or you've messed up so much that the Lord can't come and intervene and save you and offer you this gift of salvation that his son has purchased for you. That is a great myth that people have been fed to think, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad it's been. You don't know how far I've went. I beg to differ. 
Those that call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The arm of the Lord is never too short to save. Ask the thief on the cross. Was Jesus in his final moments at any point too far to be able to reach out and offer that man forgiveness? He said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. That man had probably minutes left. He lived a life of destruction and sin, most likely. And in his final moment, Jesus forgave him and offered him forgiveness and redemption. And now that man is in heaven where we will eventually probably meet him one day because the arm of the Lord is never too short to save. But listen, I close with this. Verse 14, chapter 3. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. When we are convicted, when the Lord deals with us about an area of sin in our lives, we begin to step into this place that we see is like the valley of decision. Okay, what are you going to do with that now? You've been shown. You've been convicted. The Holy Spirit, God's pleading with you. Go a different way. Don't keep going down that path. It gets really, really bad. It's already bad because of what you've done, but it's going to get way worse. I'm calling you to go to a different place of forgiveness, of restoration, and of blessing in the future. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. When we reach that place and we are, we're, we're tempted, we have to decide, what are we going to do? Am I going to turn away from this sin and fully turn toward God? Or am I going to keep meddling around in this thing and keep dealing with this thing and, and letting it entertain itself in my life? And if we do, we must understand that the longer we walk in that, ultimately, there's great destruction that will eventually become upon us. We have to recognize that God's giving us, giving us his Holy Spirit for a number of reasons. It's for a walk of intimacy. It's so we can be friends. It's so we can hear his voice. But it's also so he can convict us of sinfulness and wrongdoing and things in our lives that offend or hurt or come against the will that God has for us. And whenever he shows us that, he convicts us of that. We must be quick and rigid to turn away from that thing, throw ourselves at the feet of God, and allow him to begin to do the work of forgiveness and restoration that he's sitting back mercifully desiring, zealous for whenever we do. Are you with me? Stand to your feet today. Listen, I feel that this is a very important message that you know the church needs to hear is the enemy, he is going to try to get, he's going to try to use temptations and sin in our lives. We're, if we know Jesus, we're already forgiven. We're already made clean as far as salvation. But we still walk in a full, fallen world. And the enemy is going to try to use the sinfulness and the brokenness of this world to pull us off track of the path that God actually has for us. And, and God's given us an answer. He's given us a solution. We have a fight that we can take up. And it's simply to just turn from any of those things, our heart be rended 
and to know that there's a godly sorrow that produces repentance so that I can turn to God and I can say, God, forgive me. I am a sinful man. I've erred. I've, I've missed the mark, Lord. And I just, I'm sorry. Forgive me, God, please, of what I've done. I don't want that in my life. I don't want to go in a direction that's away from you and turn toward him fully in your heart and allow him to forgive you of that thing and be able to cleanse you of that and to restore you back to this place of righteousness. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, it says that if we say we have no sin in ourselves, then we are deceived. He's saying, look, everybody's susceptible to this. We're all people. We're all human. None of us are going to walk this out perfectly. If we say we have no sin in ourselves, then we're deceived. And, and there were people at that time that Paul was speaking to, or that John was speaking to, and he was saying, look, and there was this group of people that came up, and even in the church, they're called the Nicolaitans, and they, they, they had this idea that because they were forgiven, that they could do anything that they wanted from then on out. It wouldn't even matter. They could do any kind of sin, any kind of, it didn't matter because they were just, they were already forgiven, so they could do whatever they want. And John's saying, no, you don't understand. If you say you have no sin, then you deceive yourself. But if you will repent, God will be quick to forgive you and to restore you to a place of righteousness, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that's the walk of the believer is to regularly be in a place where we will repent of anything that God convicts us about that we've done and just get free of that thing and to continue to walk in victory and not meddle in stuff that begins to grow and weigh us down where the enemy can get that wedge in our lives, prop that door open and keep shoving himself in there more and more and more until he comes in and gets full access to bring destruction and havoc into our lives. So many of the things that we deal with a lot of times are a result of walking in a continued place of sin that God's trying to convince us and convict us that we need.